0: Never quit learning, never lose that drive, and always be looking for that learning to cross over. Build the bridge from learning into execution. Apply it. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy
1: Welcome to this week's episode. I'm sitting here at the lovely Capital Girls City Center with my guest, Bruce Gaynor.
0: How are you, Bruce? I'm fine. Thanks, Paige. How are you?
1: Pretty good. You're the president and chief Executive Officer at Sierra Pine Resources International, correct?
0: Yep, that's correct.
1: Before we get into it, uh, I wanted to please ask everyone to support the show by taking a few minutes to leave a review in iTunes, and thank you in advance. Before we dive deep into your current role, Mm -hmm. let's discuss how you got started in the industry.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting story. I was in graduate school studying physics. Where at? At Central Michigan University.
1: Oh, it's cold up there.
0: It's cold. (laughs) So it made it easy to stay inside and study.
1: Oh, I guess so, huh?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and while I was in graduate school there, I actually went to a garage sale, stumbled across a guy selling tools, and he worked for Schlumberger and not knowing anything about the oil business or Slumberger I was pretty intrigued by this little town of Mount Pleasant, Michigan, who needs an electronics technician. And so I was just, you know, he had me hooked. I asked questions and then he said, well, we're looking, this was in 73. And he, was, he said, oh, well, we're looking for engineers. And I said, I did everything I could do to talk him out of it. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm not an engineer. I'm a, expecting to be a physicist. And so you're probably barking up the wrong tree. He goes, no, no, they're looking for guys like you. And I said, well, no, I think it's a mistake. So he said, I'm going to put your name in anyway. So I forgot all about that. I bought some tools from him and went home. It was on a Saturday. And uh, Monday morning, I was headed off to my morning class, early morning class. And my roommate caught me as I was headed down the sidewalk. He said, hey, you have a phone call. And it ended up being the secretary for the slumberger office in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And, uh, oh, he really wanted you, huh? Yeah. Well, they just put my name in, and, and she called, and, or I came to the phone. And I said, well, okay, who is this, and what's this about? And she says, my my boss, my manager, told me to set up a, an appointment with you in an interview. I said, look, there's a there's been a mistake. You know, I'm not an engineer. And she goes, well, still, he, he wants you to come in and visit with him. I said, well, just explain to him it's a mistake. And she said look, my boss told me to make an appointment with you. And so when are you coming in? Is what she said. She was not going to take no for an answer. I I said, well, how about in a couple of weeks? (laughs) And uh, she said, well, how about in a couple of days? And this is 73. I didn't realize, you know, the oil embargo was going on. The oil industry was off the chain. And that's what was driving that. They were really short of engineers and they were training up math people, any kind of a science person. You could come in and get trained up by a very reputable company and and get you started in the business. So I went in, she said, bring your resume. And I said, I'm a student. I don't have a resume. (laughs) She says, well, okay, bring, bring your transcript. And so, you know, they were looking for math majors. They were looking for physics majors. I was both, and I was in graduate school in physics. Didn't really realize that. So I went in for the interview, and during that interview, it was a 45-minute interview.
1: Wow, that's, a, the, long, that's a lot of discussion. Yeah,
0: and at the end of that, he said, the manager said, well, I'm prepared to make you an offer. And I was like, wow, okay. And so that just got me started. I said, that's provided you are happy with, you have to go out in the field you have to experience the the whole job and if you like it and you feel like you can do it then we're going to offer you a job so i did that
1: so and and you still got to finish school also
0: well i didn't finish my master's degree i was in i was about halfway through or a little more than halfway through the masters in physics but i knew i wanted a job in 73 the country was going through a recession there were no job opportunities and that's why And then the school, uh, my physics independent advisor asked me if I wanted a job and offered me a uh, graduate assistantship. So I was teaching physics and working on a master's in physics. Wow, that's a lot to take on. Yeah, but it was my only option at the time. Yeah? And then this came up, and there were other, other options. There was teaching, which... Didn't, wasn't really too promising. And then uh, without a PhD in physics, you know, there was jet propulsion laboratories. There were several other things that I looked into, but with only a master's degree, you end up being like a technician yeah. to the PhDs.
1: Yeah, it's like whenever you go to school for psychology and you've got to
0: go all the way all through.
1: The way. Yeah, to even make anything. So, yeah. okay, so what happened after that?
0: Well, I just uh, got started with J and just fell in love with the science. And and as a little kid, I was a rock freak. I was always about collecting rocks and this was all about studying rocks, understanding the properties of rocks and these G ge- subsurface geophysical measurements that had a lot of science to them. So it was a it was just a, kind of the perfect alignment of a lot of interests of mine. Fell in love with the science and dug in deeper than really, we had to, you know, they had a training program, but I wanted to know more. So I I just dug into it. I wanted to know everything that Slumberger had to offer, whether they were going to teach me or whether I was going to have to learn it on my own. And that proved, that, you know, that motivation, that, that hunger for learning more really proved to be a salvation of sh- sorts as things continued on down the road and difficult times came up, you know, that was that was part of being a survivor.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. And so you've kind of you've been through more than one
0: downturn, huh? Yes. I've been through several. <laughs> yeah. Since the late seventies. I like I said I started in seventy December of seventy three. So I was in the middle of the school year. Yeah. Decided to leave school, get started making money, and it was very exciting.
1: Awesome. So so after Slumber j where'd you go?
0: Well, I was with SlumberJay for about seven years. I went through all of their development, testing, promotional levels in the field. And then after about four years, and like I started out in Michigan, but when I went to the Learning Center, I had four different locations in the first 13 months of working for SlumberJay. Started out in Mount Pleasant, went to Corpus Christi for the Learning Center, they sent me from the Learning Center, they sent me to continue my training in a depot in southern Indiana. From Indiana, that was an outpost to the district office in Watsika, Illinois. So I went from Mount Pleasant, Michigan, Corpus Christi, Linton, Indiana, to Watsika, Illinois. And then over the weekend, they transferred me from Watsik, Illinois, which is just south of Chicago, about 60, 70 miles, to Opelousas, Louisiana. I'm
1: familiar. I'm familiar. You finally made it down south where it's nice and warm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just south of Chicago to Opelousas.
0: Yeah. And I didn't even know where it was. And actually, actually, I was working my way back to a girlfriend in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. So I turned the job down. Oh. And my boss said, no, your paycheck is going to Opelousas. That's where you will go if you want the paycheck. So that's what I did. Wow, you got put in your place, didn't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Saturday morning early, I found out I was transferred to Opelousas and I reported to work. They wanted me to report to work Monday morning. Wow. So
1: that's what I did. They weren't messing around. No. So how do you like Louisiana?
0: <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. It was like... I told my friends when I got out of school, they all said, let's, let's all grow old together and stay in Michigan and da-da-da-da-da. And I, I was like, no, I'm from a tiny town in Michigan. I wanted to see the world. The people that I had known or became acquainted with that had traveled a lot, it just seemed like they were better for it. And so I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I, and I said, well, if I want to go see the world, I want to meet people from all corners of the world. I want to do things. I want to travel. And I want to experience things. And then, at the end of the day, if I want to sink the tap root back in Michigan, I'll know that I want to come back here. And so that's kind of what I've done. Is I've traveled around the world, Swanbergier got me started, and then the companies that I worked for after that, I've done a lot of traveling. I've experienced that. And um, my the closure on a fifty-year plan is I, I bought a a good bit of property back in Michigan next to my friends that I graduated with from high school.
1: There you go. <laughs> That's pretty neat. So, Opelousas, Slumberjay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what you were doing there. And
0: That was quite an experience culturally, and so that that, thus the aside for uh, the foreign country assignment, it was like for me, coming from the Midwest into South Louisiana, I was in a different country. Yep. They spoke the French as much as they did the English, and Just the people, the culture, the work. And it was a time where uh, we were working night and day, jobs back to back, but then meeting these new people and and learning. You learn a lot about yourself by getting pulled out of your comfort zone and dropped into a new place, new people. And you learn too. What I found or looked back on myself was I was in this small town. Everybody was real close. Everybody was real comfortable in knowing each other. And, it, and it's important to recognize new people coming into kind of the circle mm-hmm. and be open and welcome them. Yeah. Because one of the things that happened there in Opelousas, one, one of the gentlemen that was working, one of the senior Cajun guys. He could tell that, you know, I was three months into it and all it was was work. I hadn't met anybody. You know, there was no social life and it was probably kind of weighing on me a little bit. I was single yeah, also, which meeting people was pretty important. Yeah. And that wasn't happening. And he pulled me off the side and he said, Bruce, don't worry. These people are watching you. They're very close knit. They're watching you. They're going to figure out that you're okay, and when they do, it's going to be wonderful. And then it's, hey, cuz. And it was. It yeah. was It was just about within a month of him telling me that. It was like the floodgates opened up, and I just had the best time with all of those folks down there.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a part of why I love my, my culture. So after Opelousas, where'd you go from there?
0: Yeah, Opelousas uh, was my field experience. So I uh, went up through several levels of promotional levels mm-hmm. with Schlumberger and passed the tests, And they it's a pretty rigorous program, which was a very good thing as far as getting into the oil business, understanding all aspects of the wireline service business, and then understanding more of the aspects of the oil business. So we had videotapes while we were working. It was like a master's program, a night night school master's yeah. program. You had video programs that you had to watch. Then you took tests after each, many, many tests. Then at the end of certain levels, you took oral exams in front of the division a higher manager panel is mm-hmm. a panel to test you and kind of put you on the spot. And then, of course, the field experience was can you hold up in the battlefield, yeah. so, so to speak. So that was Opelousas. And after about four years, and I, I reached the final field-level promotion, and they moved me to Shreveport to run the computing center, the division computing center for Slumberjay, And our jurisdiction was uh, southeast part of the country. Mm-hmm. But its concentration, or the most highest level of activity, was in northwest Louisiana, northeast Texas.
1: Yeah, east Texas and the the Haynesville and all yeah. that, right?
0: Right. Well, that was oh. way before the Haynesville. Oh, really? This was in 1980. 79 and 80 is when I was up in Shreveport. And that's where I met my wife. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Finally got Sounder. out of the field. Founder, founder. <laughs> Finally got out of the field and had something of a social life, and we crossed paths.
1: That's awesome. Great story. So after Schlumberger, Union Texas Petroleum?
0: Well, actually, there was a brief, let's see, this would have been in 80. I had met my wife New Year's Day, and I started getting calls. Nice
1: way to start off the year, (laughs) huh? That's right.
0: (laughs) And coincident, kind of uh, that same kind of timing, I was getting these calls from headhunters about moving on to other. And see, I had already started night school in geology. I thought that would make me a better Schlumberger engineer. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know more and more on the operator side. So I, I convinced Centenary to take me in and do basically night school. Which they didn't have a night nice school program, but uh, I convinced them to take me in on a trial basis, and I was still I was doing well with the studies, and so daytime school, which I couldn't attend mm-hmm. because Slumberger wouldn't let me off to go to school.
1: Man, ball and chain. <laughs>
0: so, but I worked it out with the university and stayed under the radar. That I could take these classes, and as long as I did did well in the classes, they would let me keep taking classes. Awesome. So I worked that out, and while I was doing that and having met my wife, then I was getting these calls from headhunters to uh, kind of move on. It was starting to feel like maybe Slumberjai wasn't all the company for me. You know, really, there was a the that perfect fit that I thought I was looking for, although. During my field experience, perhaps one thing to mention was during my field experience, I started out in analog equipment. So there was cameras and things and that wireline. And I overlapped just about in equal years to what are now the computerized units. That was new new age technology and stuff. Well, I was chosen as the featured engineer in Slumberger's annual report on the introduction of the computerized unit. They didn't want to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> and that was while I was still in, in the field. Yeah. And so I, I was on the cover of the annual report. And then there cool. was a big spread inside the annual report on me in the field with my crew using this new service. And so that kind of advanced me a bit. And yeah. Gave you a little boost in confidence, huh? Right. And I, I, was, uh, I was all slumberjay. And then when I got into Shreveport, I don't know, I, uh, things kind of changed for me. Your wife. <laughs> that, that was a big part of it. Yeah. That was a big part of it. And I became more and more intrigued with the operator side of things, not the service side of things. And it looked to me like that was a real opportunity for somebody that really understood the slumberjay side of things could get onto the operator and, and give them good advice on, and help. And that was my mission. You know, I wanted, to, I was looking for a niche where I could contribute, be helpful, add value. And it ju- I just got a greater sense that I could do more of that on the operator side.
1: What stood out about that to make you
0: well? It seemed to me like the questions I opened up my doors of the computing center to the operators, you know, typically we're sort of like in the back room creating the analysis and then the salesman would deliver it. Well, as I interfaced more and more with them and the questions I was fielding indicated that they're part-time understanding what that service is, what those measurements are, and they would benefit greatly by somebody that could continue to teach them and teach them how to better use that information. Ah, yeah. And so all of their questions really indicated that they didn't have all the insights on the usefulness of that data. And I, I thought this is an opportunity to demonstrate added value through a larger number of people and, and teach. Yeah. And, the, and teaching was one of the things I thought I wanted to do when I was in school. And then I realized that it's not very rewarding <laughs> <laughs> but in the sense that it's not, it's, uh, you don't get paid real well for it. Yeah. And there's, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of frustrations in, in teaching, and, and I don't think...
1: Because everybody learns a different way.
0: Right. And I get that administrations, are, there's not that much support for teachers.
1: In all different kinds of aspects. Yeah, I've, uh, My sister is a teacher, or actually, I think she's a counselor now. Um, and my, my sister-in-law is also a teacher, so and my neighbor. So I've got like a profound respect. I mean, I deal enough with my own children, much less a classroom full you know? Mm -hmm. So I can definitely see why that would be frustrating.
0: I have a profound respect for the teachers that I've had. And I I feel that education has been everything to my successes. Everything I have is attributable to my willingness to dig in and, and learn as much as I could possibly learn, whether it was handed to me or whether I had to go get it. Yeah. So, I think learning is everything, and the people that teach and help people to learn are hugely valuable.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you got headhunters calling you?
0: Headhunters calling, throwing big dollars at me, and it sounded like it was going to be more fun. I was headed toward management. I was headed toward kind of a jobs inside of Schlumberger that I wasn't convinced I really wanted, and with them... I learned early on, you don't turn down a job offer, uh, like a promotion, inside the company. So it started to give me a sense that maybe I was headed down a path that I didn't want to go, but I was going to have to go if I was going to stay inside a and And to decline would be like career suicide. Yeah. You, know, you decline something that a company offers you, they're not likely to give you more opportunities. I guess, fine, okay, you're stuck there now. So, I, I just, it looked like outside the company, there was going to be more flexibility, more versatility in, in options to do more of what I wanted to do. So, I pursued that. Went to Home Petroleum. And uh, the timing. Were was... they
1: also located in North Louisiana?
0: No, I actually, they brought me to Houston. Oh, and that's that was my first move, and I had the best boss ever. He's definitely in my top three, and we we remain friends today, and over so many years, and you know, we keep in touch. But he, he recruited me away from Slumberger, brought me to Houston, and he actually intercepted me because I was all about Amico International and Amico International Mm -hmm. had a a really, I had a lot of respect for that company and the people working for it. And I'd crossed paths with them in the field, and they got me interested in this, it was uh, like a high-level group of uh, petrophysicists and big-name guys that that I thought, now this is who I want to be associated with. Got it. Came, interviewed, got the job offer, and I was ready to go. And it was another one of those things where I tried to you know, talk them out of the job. This new company, Home Petroleum, and this manager, through a headhunter, intercepted me I, and said, we understand that you're headed toward Amoco, and we think you owe it to yourself to take a look at us. And they just, Amoco offered me a, a big raise. I was all about that. And All these, right, these yeah. guys offered a big raise over that. So I kind of went after the gold ring. But 1980, it was so within meeting my wife on New Year's Day, I changed jobs, married her in, in 6 months. Wow. 6 months we we got married, I changed jobs, we moved to Houston, and I went to work for Home Petroleum. But that was also when there was dramatic downturn in the oil prices. Yeah. And so there was a lot of carnage, a lot of a lot of bad stuff going on starting then. It was my first experience with a layoff. When it was announced to us, it was expressed as a census reduction. So I turned to this old It's really broad. Yeah, census reduction.
1: And vague.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I turned to this old geologist, I mean very senior geologist. And you know, at that time I was a young young guy. I was 30. Uh, I said, census reduction, what is that? It doesn't sound good. And he he says, no, little buddy, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my first experience at a layoff. And then, boy, they came fast and furious. We made it through several. And I was only with Home Petroleum for a year, but it happened just not long. It started not long after I came aboard. And that's when Union, Texas They were already talking to me, and I had gone and had an interview, got a job offer, so I jumped ship after about the second or third layoff. I mean, they they were coming just about every other month at Home Petroleum, so it was time to move on. I figured, you know, there's fewer and fewer people to take down, so my days were numbered, and it was time to move on to somebody that looked like they were really still rolling forward. Yeah. Uni, Texas, and I stayed with them about seven years, landed into a very good group, worked my way through evaluating wells. Then I got recruited into the international side or farmed out to the international side. I was working domestic and uh, farmed out to do field studies. They had a petrophysicist that was sitting and evaluating the exploration wells. But then when they made this field discovery... I did more of a full-field, top-to-bottom evaluation that contributed to a development plan. Mm -hmm. Instead of just, okay, we've got a well and we're going to go drill more wells, this was now we have a field. How are we going to evaluate this? What does that mean about picking it apart and then putting it back together, most efficient development? So more on the reservoir side. Right. When I came to Houston, I knew that I wanted to continue with postgraduate studies. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to get into an industry that if I fell in love with that industry, then I wanted to continue postgraduate studies. So now I'm with, I fell into the oil business, fell in love with it. I'm out of the field. I can start going to night school. I did extra school at Centenary. When I came to Houston, I immediately enrolled into uh, U of H. Go the master, yeah, master's mm-hmm. program. And when I showed up, I was assigned an advisor. Mm-hmm. And I took in my resume and I said, well, you know, I'm in the oil business. I want to I do studies that add with that experience. He said, well, let's have a look at your resume. And I gave him my resume. And oh, you had one at that point now? Well, yeah. Well, actually, it was a transcript. It was still another transcript. But I did have a resume now because now I had seven years' experience. Yeah. And when he looked at my transcript, he goes, oh, well, you're a geophysicist. I went, okay, let's so, do that. Sounds good. <laughs> so I started in a geophysics program. and But when I got about halfway through it, And that was about a year, a little over a year down the road. And that was also coincident with me transitioning from Home Petroleum to Union, Texas. I went to them, and everywhere I went, they wanted to put me in the engineering department. So I was an engineer. But because, I don't know, I became the designated hitter to go talk to the geos, because the engineers didn't want to talk to the geos. They didn't care (laughs) to do that.
1: Some things never change. And
0: for me, (laughs) I was ready to... I had already started with a geological background, so I, I like talking to the geos. Yeah. And I'm working with the engineers. So, and then, and then it started to look like this is a niche. This is a hole that nobody seems to want to fill. And I felt like I could fill that, and there was, would be value in building these bridges between these technically different departments. And that proved to be, you know, that w- that became my kind of my model for the rest of my career is building those bridges. And the convergence or the assimilation of very different technologies is what a team is all about. And the most effective teams are those that have those bridges built. And the players are willing to traverse those bridges and connect up with their technical counterparts. The technical counterparts, you know, a team, if it's an effective team, has to be made up of people that have different disciplines, and mm-hmm. therefore they have very different characters. And so given that they're very different characters, there can be a, a great opportunity for them not getting along for conflict mm-hmm. in different ways of thinking about things, different ways about doing things.
1: buttonheads, and, yeah.
0: That's it. And just personality things, but the what I discovered too was the key element of a of a powerful and effective team is one that every team member is really good at what they do, but they know that they're better working together
1: and complementing each other
0: exactly, and they depend on each other to be more successful than they could be if they're they think they can do it all by themselves
1: yeah and that that's really across the board in any team. So how long
0: were you there? 9 years. And there I finished up my math while there I finished up my master's degree and then I I uh, as a petroleum engineer I started out as a, in geophysics got halfway through it working always with the engineers went to my advisor and said hey look if I bust out with a master's in geophysics. It's going to be like starting all over. I'll be in the exploration department instead of the development department, and I don't want to get an education that's going to stipulate a career change of sorts.
1: Yeah, disruptive.
0: Right. I want want a certain sense of continuity. Yeah. But I don't want to start all over with my studies either. I'm more than (laughs) halfway through on a master's in geophysics. Yeah. And he said, I'll tell you, we can work with you on that. We'll use the geology and the geophysics that you've taken as a minor toward a master's in petroleum engineering. What a good advisor. And so I, Yeah. And so I had to take just a few extra courses, but not start all over. And so I was able to finish up with a master's in petroleum engineering. And that, that cross-training of sorts really proved to be valuable in subsequent years. Uh, when I got out, I had the degree. Shortly afterward, Union Texas and this vice president that I was working for kind of acknowledged that and said, well, this guy. In fact, my, my current boss, the manager, was like, why are you killing yourself going to night school and working like you are? And I said, because I want to learn more. I want to know more about this. I want to understand it. And I I want to get out of this pigeonhole kind of job, and I wanted the broader perspective. And he was like, well, okay, but you're doing just fine where you're at, and you've got nothing to worry about. And I said, well, I I think I want more. (laughs) And when I got that degree, the uh, vice president I was working for kind of rewarded me with making me a reservoir engineer moving us out to Midland briefly, then bringing us back to Houston after layoffs. So I I survived all of that, and so I got the reservoir engineering experience. And my mission was, okay, you've done me a favor. You know, as an employee, it's got to cut both ways. You gave me opportunity. I'm going to prove to you that that was a good decision. And so I evolved into not only managing my own my own properties and putting together development plans but I evolved into being the, their strategic plan coordinator for uh, for budget and coordinating the efforts of the all the onshore uh, reservoir engineers rolling up their plans of development, into a budget plan that I worked with the board of directors on. Well, and I worked with the liaison to the board of directors. And so we we did that as in addition to the job responsibilities I had. Sounds like
1: you were wearing a lot of hats.
0: Yeah, and that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that, you know, working harder and working smarter would be the key to keeping my job. And it was all about keeping your job in the 80s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's when you 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 just got a job and you just worked as hard as you could and I hope to God that you stayed on you know yeah
0: and unfortunately that just me keeping my head down there were people on the outside of the company and and people that I worked with that got laid off went to other places and that proved to be this unforeseen network of mine and literally when it looked like Union Texas they were on the blocks. What I had done was I'd taken several of their onshore fields and built them up to being some of their top producing properties. And that's what got me into the data room, because now I had moved these fields into the top performers, and so I needed to tell that story in the data room. That opened up you know, access to companies if they were going to buy the properties and they might be looking for new employees. The people that got laid off went to other places, and they spoke highly of me. So they were my unexpected salespeople, right? That's awesome. And out of the blue, Pennzoil comes to me. And literally months before, I knew we were about to sell the properties, and I was going to be out of a job. Yeah, And by this time, I have four young children, and uh, things weren't looking good. So I sent out, I literally sent out 150 resumes.
1: Not transcripts, though, right? No, not, tra- <laughs> not I learned, you know, Years of experience. Now it's a resume.
0: Got zero response. Zero response. Whoa. And so... That's scary. Yeah, so I'm continuing through the data room. And then out of the blue, a friend that had got laid off became, and a co-worker, was now a salesperson. And she was inside of Pennzoil, visiting with the senior vice president of, of technical services at Pennzoil. She called me up. She goes, Bruce, you need to call Pennzoil. I just talked to this guy. He's got your name. He's got you by name, and he, he wants to talk to you about a job, a position. And I, I thought it was somebody, and it was another one of those situations where I tried to talk myself out of the job because I just knew it was a mistake, that this is, he's got the wrong name or he's got the wrong information, and I can't possibly be who they're looking for.
1: You sent out 150 resumes. I bet one got back.
0: No. No, he just no. What it, he explained to me later, but so I let that go for like two months. I didn't didn't call him, and then she calls me back. She says, "Hey, I just got chewed out for not telling you or having you contact this guy." And she says, "Call him up and at least talk to him." So I did, and then he told me, "Well, yeah, we're looking for somebody that has kind of a broader." And I said, well, what is the job description? He said, well, it's anything you want it to be. I was this is just bizarre. This is bizarre. And I says, well, what do you think you're looking for? What do you expect to get out of this? And he said, well, we think we want somebody with a lot of cross-training, geological, engineering, and petrophysics. And I said, well, and he started saying petrophysicists, and I had worked hard to get out of just... Being a, and definitely nothing wrong with being a petrophysicist. It's a very respectable job, but in a sense, it's kind of a high tech job, and everybody wants to keep you in the back room and just get answers out of you when they need it, and then kind of stay out of stay out of their way, and it, it's not perceived as a, typically not perceived as a businessman. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to learn more about the business, and I wanted to be plugged into the business as well and impact it. And one of the things that I, one of my feelings about things was there seems to be, in my mind, there was too much of a disconnect between good science, good technology, and business practices. They don't speak the same language. They don't understand each other, and that's a very important connect and there was too much of a disconnect, in my opinion. So I was trying to get out of that to be this reservoir engineer and more of a businessman, more of a project manager that understood implementing these technologies and having that come to bear in the business plan. That was my goal. That was my mission. And... I just, being a petrophysicist, sounded like that was backing up. So I told him, I said, I, I, think, I think you're barking up the wrong tree. Let me send you my resume. Uh-huh. And uh, you take a look at it, and you'll see what really my background is, and then you'll know if this is a match with what you're looking for. And he said, no. He said, I already know you're the guy I'm looking for. And I was like, Okay, you you don't know what the job description is. I write my own job description, and how is this all possible? And I, I said, well, okay. So he said, when can I meet you? And it was another one of those well, about in a couple of weeks. <laughs> he said, how about lunch tomorrow? I you paying? Well, okay, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I met him for lunch, and. Before lunch was over, right away he was talking about me interviewing only with the top managers of the company, starting with the president.
1: Wow, starting with the president, starting with not the
0: ending. President. Right, starting with the president, and I was like, really? And in it, we got to talking about potential salaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like holy smokes, it was literally nearly triple what I was making.
1: Wow. And I was, How do you say no to that?
0: Well, it was easy because I was like, you're barking up the wrong tree. You can't possibly be thinking I'm going to fill this job and you're going to pay me that. So, but I said, well, okay, because he was so insistent. So I said, okay, I'll go have the interview. And, and of course they were coaching me. It was Bill Shell was the president at the time, and it was right around Thanksgiving, Christmas time. Or actually, it was in the middle of the year, because it ended up Christmas time when I left the company to take this job. But we went through three tours of the data room. And I was like, and I, because I was in the data room, because I had brought these fields to such a high level that they were going to generate a lot of value if the properties were sold, and with that, they gave me, uh, I was promised a very large uh, severance package, basically a two-year severance package if I stayed with the company. Okay, so then I go on to the interview, come back from the interview, and, they, of course, they prepped me and said, you're not going to have much time to visit with Bill Shell, So have your questions ready, have your answers ready. You'll be doing well to talk to him for ten minutes. Okay, so I went in there and prepared for that, and we just got to visiting. And several times, you know, he'd look over show over my shoulder, and he'd kind of like that. Shoo him away. And it was the secretary looking to maybe save him from this talk with me and pull me out of there. And he was he was giving me more time, giving me more time. We ended up talking for forty minutes. Wow, nearly an hour, and. I really enjoyed it I mean visiting with him, and uh, here's a guy that has led a company i I really I figured this is my only chance to talk to a guy high up so how did you get there? how did you get there? what did you do? what are the keys to your success and I guess that he was good about talking about himself and then he would ask things about me and that's I, in a way, bought myself some time, but it was out of genuine interest. And it's like, here's a guy that I might be able to learn from when I walk away. Well, when I, I left, and I went back to my office. I no sooner walked into my office at work, and this vice president calls me. Uh-oh. And he said, so how did it go? And I said, well, yeah, I think it went pretty well. We talked, actually, for quite a long time. He said, went pretty well. He said it was. It went amazing. He called me up and he said, "That's your man. Don't parade him around the company talking to anybody else because we don't want to compromise him on his job." So, wow, that's awesome. So here's you want to talk about just the alignment of the stars. And I said, "Well, I got this big severance. I'd like to kind of see this data room through, get my severance, and then jump over there."
1: Well, not only that, but finish what you you kind of started. Yeah, closure. Yeah, closure. Absolutely.
0: He said, "Well, okay, we'll we'll try that." So we went through the data room, got the bids in unsatisfactory. We're going to redo the beta data room. So I call him back and I said, "We're going to have to we're going to go through another sales effort cycle." He goes, "Oh, okay. Well, how long is that going to be?" It looks like it's going to be two to three months. I said, "Well, okay, we'll see what we can do." Waited through that. Another bid's in. Those were unsatisfactory. Now we're Goodness. going to en- enter into a third round of data room in maybe another two to three months. And now that brings us to between Thanksgiving and December. I tell him that. And he said, Well, look, we can, we're going to have to start looking. Yeah. And so I said, Well, yeah regrets, but I think I need to see this through. Well, the person, the liaison to the board that I was working with as the strategic plan coordinator and and dumping all of these development plans and organizing them onto her, we got to be good friends working together. Uh Uh-huh. And it was after Thanksgiving, she comes to me and every time she called me up, it usually meant that we we're going to have to pull some kind of emergency all-nighter, yep. working numbers and preparing for presentations for for the board. When she called up, I went like, "Oh boy!" She goes, "No, no, this is this is a a friendly call." I said, "Oh, okay." And she said, "It's sort of not business related."
1: Okay, why are you calling?
0: <laughs> and she she said. I was home for Thanksgiving, and here we go off on this. And she said, I was visiting with my dad, and he said that, yeah, you're working for Union Texas, aren't you? She said, yeah. She said, well, I'm I'm interviewing an engineer over there. And she was like, you're interviewing an engineer? Well, I didn't think you were in the interview business. And he said, well, I am on this one. I said, okay. She says, he said, so... Do you know Bruce Gaynor? And she said she just busted out laughing. She goes, Yeah, yeah, I know him. I said, Well, I, I hope you said good things. He says, don't <laughs> worry, don't worry. It was all cool. But he said she said he he said a very interesting thing to me. And I said, Well, what was that? And Bill Shell was this kind of this classic gruff old oil man with a big cigar in his mouth all the time. And he, so he had this big gruff voice and she mimicked him. She goes, "That boy should know jobs don't stay open forever." <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so she said, uh, "What do you think he meant by that?" And I said, "I know what he meant by that." So I called up the vice president and I said, "I'm I'm done. I'm done over here. I'm ready to quit and I'm going to I'm going to forego that severance. Because I I want the job, I'm really looking forward to working with you guys. So he told me that, hold off a second, go get your physical, let's make sure that you're going to be okay before you break the news to anybody. And he said, I've got some some ideas on some things. And then we did start talking about a final salary, and I told him, he said, what are you making now? And I told him, and he went, oh, my gosh. He said, I can't, in this day and time, I can't offer you what I've already represented and not get in trouble with the board. Because apparently it was a board-approved position because they had been going through layoffs and there was a hiring freeze, and so this had to be approved. And it got approved, but now... We we're going to talk salary and close the circle on it all. He said, let me work a couple of things what I can come up with. So I went to my physical. He knew right away. I, he got the word that I had passed it. And so he called me up and he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer you. And he, he actually gave me more than a 50% increase. And he said, if you stay with the company five years or more, we'll make you whole on that severance.
1: Whoa. And that's what they did. That, how cool.
0: It was, and I'm telling you, he was the best boss I have ever had. No, not taking anything away from the guy that brought me to Houston because he is like a best friend now. But I knew I was working with the right people. So, and what that did was, to the absolute limit of my ability I wanted to prove to him that was a worthwhile investment. Look, yeah, and and we did. It was hugely successful. It was just the dream job over the next seven years. And at the end of the first year, Bill Shell retired, and new management came in, and this boss of mine engineered the new management team and made me a part of of that as an advisor to them, and then. They took me, they let me go, and that boss, when he put me into that job, he came to me the first year and said, look, you go wherever you need to go inside the company, but the next three months you need to go meet everybody, all levels, engineers, vice presidents, all the way down to the lowest level worker bees. You need to understand everybody's abilities, and we're looking for you to understand the technical or uh, the technologies available off the street. So by meeting everybody in all the business units, listen to their problems, and then you bring technical solutions to their problems. And you, he said, I was empowered to snatch people from different parts of the company and play matchmaker with... Well even though you're working in the Permian Basin, you have the background or the knowledge or the wherewithal to solve this problem in offshore. And so that's what I did for a year and it was hugely,
1: hugely successful. That sounds fun.
0: oh it was it was crazy fun. And at the end of that year, when the new management team came in, they put me in in charge of technical services worldwide. and so i I built. It was a staff, international staff, of three or four people on the technical side. And because we got into a big project with the new management team, he came to me and he said, you have six weeks to put together a group of 35 people. And, well, actually, that was before that happened, when the new management team came in and we had a big project. Uh, They had brought in a deal opportunity in Azerbaijan. And so my boss says you're going to go with them. You're going to go with them. And I said, "Well, what do I need to, what am I supposed to do?" He said, "Just just go over there and listen listen and contribute where you think you can." I said, "Well, do I need to take my computer or what do I need to take with me?" He said, "Well, take whatever you think you need to take with you." I said, well, so what am I supposed to do? <laughs> That's really vague. Yeah. <laughs> this is the same guy that said I could write my own Oh, well of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I said, Well, what am I supposed to do? He said, Well just just go over there and make friends. I went, What? I'm a technical guy. Nobody has ever asked me to do that. <laughs> and so but as circumstance and luck would have it, when I got over there you know, I was seeking a kind of a common thread. So we met the state representatives, top officials, and started meeting people down through the state owned oil company. And so I was looking for somebody of like mine, you know, the the icebreaker, and hit on some subjects where we could start talking and in confidence and in comfort. About what we knew, how we do things, and, and they were hungry for our technologies. And, and that was kind of our leverage to get into the opportunities that they had over there. And it was, it was about teaching. Yeah. And so I was good with that. I hit the ground running over there and just kind of stumbled into it again, just visiting, making friends like I was supposed to hit on a few people. And I brought my computer, demonstrated some things, and how we do stuff. And we were there four or five days. And this was probably on the the fourth day, the day before we were supposed to leave. There was going to be a banquet of all of the people that had been interacting through the week. And so I was, I was at this one outpost, and when I was demonstrating this, and they they just tested me you know they said hey how about this well what do you see in here what would you interpret because and little did i know that they had departmental uh, differences of opinion and so i rendered my opinion and it built the bridge just unknowingly just it built the bridge between the two i says well this this is how i would see what you've got here and it started with well explain to me Everything was in Russian and everything was foreign. So I was doing everything through a translator. But I said, well, what is this measurement? And he just, it didn't translate because we had a non technical translator. So he sat down and drew the like coil, the design, the internal guts of the measurement. And because I went that extra step and I understood that which is something they had books for in Schlumberger, but they didn't teach it. They didn't require you to learn it, but I did learn it. So when he drew those pictures, I said, oh, well, that's, that's an induction tool. Now I know, now we're on the same page. We'll draw this picture. Oh, yeah, that's a density neutron. So now I know what they are. I digitized them, and I, I did the analysis right in front of them. And they were like, and I said, well, this is what I get from this. What I, and then they said, well, what would you expect for the performance? And I described that. And that was exactly what they were getting. And it was in a lot of ways, that's just sheer dumb luck, but it was kind of experience. It was like an educated guess. Uh, Well, this is what I think should be happening. That's what they got. And now everybody was in agreement and it happened in the course of an hour. You're kind of a, you're kind of a bridge builder. This seems to be very consistent
1: across your. And life. the
0: beauty of it, and right, and uh, that's what I've recognized early on is that's what I want to try to be. Now, sometimes you you get in the middle of the fight and you have to you have to choose a side. You know, it's all about what you think is right. But I'm always looking for. Well, you know, you're saying the same thing as what he's saying, but you're not listening to each other. You're saying it a different way, but it's really. You're saying the same thing. So just helping people recognize that really you are in agreement. You just doesn't feel like it. So, and I'm going through that right now in another situation where actually I'm, I'm on one side and I can't seem to get the message. I can't build that bridge, which is really frustrating, Hmm. but what had happened then after after that experience? Well, he had called ahead to the very top guy in the oil business and the oil company, and he was going to be at this banquet, and so so was my team. So was this uh, oil leadership team. Well, I didn't know all this was going on. By the time we got back into town and we walked up to the place where the banquet was. And this top guy was talking to our top guys, and they saw us get out of the car and walking up. He just made a beeline to me and grabbed a hold of his translator, drug him along, left left our president and vice presidents that that he was talking to, came right up to me, about tore my hand off, my arm (laughs) off, shaking my hand. And he said, and of course everybody was like, is this going to be a confrontation, or what is this? They didn't know what was happening, but it was, it looked like it. I mean, he came at me. And the translator, he said, said to translate for me. And so the translation was, this is what I've been preaching to everybody. This is the technology that we want to bring to this country. He was excited. He was just plain out excited. So I go home. I go home. And... My boss says, well, how did it go? <laughs> it was another one of those things. That I said, I think it went pretty well. I, I made some friends. And he said, I say you did. They want you back next week. So I turned right back around and went back there and visited with them. And, and I was a little bit on my own that time. After that visit, that's when they put me in charge of International. And I was I picked my team from my teams from inside the company and off the street, so I, I I blended employees with consultants for you know kind of this SWAT teams. Yeah, to work with the state-owned oil company and do this joint venture.
1: That's so awesome! It, it seems like your your boss then just kind of knew you'd figure it out. He just kind of didn't want to give you any direction figure it out. You'll figure it out. It's just, that's, and you did.
0: Yeah. And then I found out how all this happened. Later, it was maybe a year into it, or maybe even two years into it, I, I, I came to him and I said, you know, I'm just loving everything that's going on. It's dynamic. It's exciting. There's controversy, but there's solutions. We're engineering solutions and everybody's feeling the love. I said, how did you come by me? How did this happen? He said, well, we went out to uh, three of the top industry consultants and sent them out and said, give us five names of people that you think the company needs. And he said, he sent them out separately. And he said, they all came back with your name. Mine was the only name common to all three.
1: But, wow, that is so neat. So, they,
0: they, he, that's why he decided three independent opinions, and I was the common denominator of all three. I was the only common denominator.
1: I bet you that blew your mind. It it's did. blowing
0: my mind right now. I it mean, did. that's wow. It did. And it was turned out to be uh, former Slumberjay guys that were consultants but big-name consultants that we had crossed paths just innocently enough, crossed paths, did some things together. One guy worked at Ridgefield and I was just providing him data. And if Richfield is was Slumberjays research. Yeah. I was providing him with data out of our computing center that he was using to advance uh, research studies on rock, rock physics, and That sort of thing. So we had this interaction, and then later he he had left Slumberjay, and he all three of them had big names for themselves, and I had all, I had crossed paths with all of them either through industry things, industry functions, and or dinners, just yeah, nothing but just casual conversation. Each one of them came up with my name.
1: That is so. That's great. That's a great story. That is a great story. All right, so now we know your, the backstory of where you got started, and let's talk about what you're
0: doing now. Yeah, what was it? I left, I did several things with Penzo, and then I kind of came to, again, you know, big, big company business, big company politics, big company bureaucracy, big company decisions on who gets laid off, who doesn't. And I was pulled in as part of that. And that was pretty gut-wrenching. I was supposed to be the guy that filtered, uh, helped the management team filter the technical wherewithal of people. Mm. And I'm all about building companies, not taking them apart. Yeah. And that wasn't very much fun. and I, I quit, started having some fun. And to... I got to looking at what I was, what we did in Egypt, what we did in Bahrain, what we did in Azerbaijan. Uh, all these, all these uh, state-owned oil companies were thirsting for Western technology, and they weren't getting it from the majors. And the reason they had brought the majors in was to have that kind of a partnership and a technological exchange. So, I just took my model that I experienced in Azerbaijan with Penzoil as this is what SBRI is going to be. I'm going to put together the A-teams and we're going to go help countries. And we're going to, we're going to take a smaller share of the winnings, but a smaller share of the winnings on a smaller group is going to be big. Yeah, And so we could do that for companies domestically and we could do things like that. For countries so I, I decided that was my model and my dream was always you know build companies I want to be part of building a company and that, that's what drove me to do more inside the company because I wanted to move into positions where I could m- help make those decisions build that bridge between technologies and financial decisions and it wasn't really happening I was advisors. But I wasn't a decision maker, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've always dreamed. And when I quit Pennzoil, the president then called me up to his office and he said, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I've had this dream of starting and building a company. I either have to go live the dream or i got to quit dreaming. And I said, I've thought about this for two years. I've thought through this for two years. And I think I've just got to do this. And he goes, Okay, I just I just wanted to be sure that you knew what you're doing and that you thought through this. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Well, good luck. And so I went on and formed SPRI and a former president that I worked for a former vice president, the senior vice president at Union Texas. Before I quit Penzo, I I had lunch with him, and I said, this is what I'm thinking. And he said, well, I don't know about you and your teams. I know about you. And he said, you know, at this day and time, if you have a job, you should, every morning you get out of bed, you should drop to your knees and thank the good Lord you have a job. This was ninety-seven. And I told him, I said, I have thought this out and I have made a decision and I'm not gonna make a I'm not gonna change my mind. This is what I wanna do and I feel like I've gotta try and do it. You know, I'm forty five years old. I said, Everything I've ever heard about, if you're not there by forty five, you won't be there. So it was I gotta do this and I talked it over to my wife and she was like, Yeah. I'm not too sure about this, but she says, I'm trusting in you completely on your decision. You know what you can do, and so I'm behind you. So I was talking to this this president now when I had lunch, and I said, this is what I want to do. And he gave me that piece of advice, and I said, well, I'm not changing my mind. I've made this decision, and I'm going to do it. He goes, well, okay. Since you've made up your mind, I'm going to give you your first contract. (laughs) how cool is that so he brought me in to they just made a big acquisition on offshore from a large company Mm -hmm. and he brought me in he said i want you to come in and help me build assimilate that into the company figure out things to do build up the offshore help build up the offshore so that's what i did the fun part of that was my very first day on the job, I told him, I said, well, this is what I want to do. I want to go help international countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can do it domestically, and I can do it internationally. So he said, well, okay, but I've just got this offshore thing. Well, my first day on the job, I walk in, and I said, well, here I am, ready to go to work. And he said, uh, there's been a change of plans. How big a change of plans? Oh, no. He said, we need for you to go to Syria, and uh, we need a exploration production guy as part of the power and pipeline g- group. There's going to be a, a group going to Syria and interfacing with the government, interfacing with the state-owned oil company, and develop a plan to basically industrialize Syria with a power supply from gas fields that they discovered and didn't have the infrastructure for, and that, that those gas fields would fuel industries and, and provide power to the country. So my job was to identify the fields, a development plan to develop those fields to deliver a certain amount of gas daily for the next 10 years. And then no pressure put that, those pieces of the puzzle together with the power group. And they were in power and pipeline, and they were going to build the infrastructure and the power uh, generators that would be driven by this gas supply. And then that power would be pumped out to the rest of the country. That was my job. So, uh, quite the job. <laughs> I would, that's a wow.
1: That's really cool.
0: Yeah, it was exciting. So was that was that
1: was the very first I mean your first just, assignment. You're just yeah, you just talk about it and then all of a sudden you've got your first contract, you walk right. in. Right. Plans have been changed and you you've helped a lot of
0: people. It was satisfying. I that's, can imagine that's how we got off the ground. Then when I came back, that was just a three month assignment. Mm-hmm. You know what the funny part was I came in, reported to work Thursday morning. And I had to be on the ground in in Damascus Monday morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I came home. I said, well, I'm leaving the country. I don't know when I'm coming back. <laughs> when do you have to be gone? Well, tomorrow. I have to f- start flying out tomorrow. Wow.
1: Yeah. So how has the model of your business changed from then to now? Or has it?
0: Oh, it has. It sure has over the years. Now, in the early years, everybody that I'd worked with, it was easy enough. I never had to, all of my work for the last 20 years has been by word of mouth, by referrals of people that know me and say, okay, we want, I just call them and say, hey, I've got a little slack time. see say, fine, we've got work for you. That has changed. In the last 5 to 10 years they've all I've helped a lot of people be very successful and contributed to them retiring early which has proven to be a disadvantage to me <laughs> there's no more work <laughs> right right and so now i'm back to what i was told by my 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 best boss i'm out trying to make friends and generate new business, introduce people, because people don't know who I am. Not like they knew who I was back in the 80s, 80s and 90s. And so I'm nobody to anybody now. And what I didn't, or what I really discounted the value of is having a big company behind you. When I was at Pennzoil, I had to be careful of how I thought out loud on potential solutions. Because they'd run off and do it. Mm -hmm. So I I had to filter myself because they weren't applying filters to me. Right. Now, I think through problems for solutions, and then it's it's an uphill battle to convince anybody that it has merit. Why is that? Because any more solutions— all, all solutions take a little bit of thinking out of the box, mm-hmm. and that scares that scares managers that are, are typically risk adverse, and it scares employees that are risk adverse because, all too often in the larger companies, doing nothing is a lot safer than doing something and making a mistake. So you know there is a tendency for. But how them, do you
1: learn anything unless you do make a mistake?
0: But that's the point. Most people aren't. They're thinking, keep my job. I don't care if I learn anything or not. And that's the different drivers between me and them. And, and that is a big reason why I was an excellent employee, but I was not a good fit for a company. I came in early, for my salary. I was always in early. And I always left late. So I left time on the table. Most everybody else, the smart people inside a company don't leave money on the table. Yeah. Right. And it's not about extra effort unless you're really driven for opportunity. Or for me, it was as much accomplishment. That's, that's really what I want to accomplish. That is your legacy. That's, that's your resume is proof in putting, your technology, your know-how, to creating value. Very good.
1: So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be?
0: Never quit learning. Never lose that drive. And always be looking for that learning to cross over. Build the bridge from learning into execution. Apply it. And part of that learning is taking calculated risk. You know, there's so many times that I have taken risk that by others was perceived as high risk. I didn't see it as high risk because I felt like there was enough technical understanding and insight that aberrated that risk in my mind. And I can't tell you how many times we've done things and I've I've had the expression, I don't give that a snowball's chance in hell of working. And it does work. Then when it does work, they're like, wow, who would have thought? And it's kind of like I want to speak up and say, uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where we are now. And I hate to, I don't want to be too stereotypical or judgmental, but The younger managers, the younger people coming into the business, and typically the managers that have a weaker technical background can't appreciate the technical story to know that they just feel that it's risky and they can't see otherwise. And they can't appreciate the delivery of the the technical insights to where it's not that risky, it's worth the calculated risk. And that is the root to where we are now. In a mature basin, in a mature basin, everything easy and obvious has been done. And solutions are always rooted in, well, this is a difficult problem. I don't understand it. So everybody that comes to that problem ahead of you has applied the obvious you have to be prepared to dig in deeper and think out of the box a little bit and not get crazy There's Some people who just get twisted off with, I'm thinking way out of the box. And,
1: in a more realistic manner. Yeah.
0: And oddly enough, when I was in college, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to be an art major, a math major, or a physics major. So I nearly had, well, I had all the credit hours to have majors in all three, and I just got a major. I completed all the technical sides of a major in math and physics because the starving artist thing was not what I was going for. Because you would be starving. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. But the value of that experience was interpretation is artwork, interpretation of technical information is artwork. And why? Because Uh, So many of the highly technical people can't step. If you're looking forward, you're stepping out of the box and making projections from technical information to what could be. So an artwork is about creating things out of nothing, and that's problem-solution.
1: Very good. Quite inspiring. What book influenced you the most?
0: Early on, you know, I was, I was really ambitious and then Slumberjay and Slumberjay really beats that into you. I had a manager, real good boss, but he was a tough cookie. Everybody feared him, but he kind of took me under his wing and he would bring me a whole lot of books. One of them, uh, and most of them were Machiavellian, (laughs) which, which, uh, I just, I don't believe in that. I'd like, I'm hopeful, I'd like to believe that to get ahead, you don't have to cut the heads off of your competition. Uh, You don't have to kill them. But one of the books that he passed on to me was uh, In Search of Excellence, and -hmm. that really resonated with me. And it was uh, Peter's, Mm -hmm. and that inspired me as far as you know, what are the trademarks of people that are highly successful? I could relate to a lot of it, but then I realized there's a good bit of it that wasn't me. So I, I there was the opportunity to say, well, I want to make that part of me, or I aspire to that, and that was a motivator. And I find you need those kind of motivators because work can discourage you. Yeah, it can. The people... There's a lot of people that want to throw you under the bus. There's not a lot of people that really build you up. And two, just if you're doing anything, you're going to have failures. Yeah. And those failures hurt. Even if you have a high rate of success, every failure just stings. But you learn from it, and that's the key thing. Yeah. Don't make this mistake twice. Once, fair enough. Not twice.
1: Yeah. What is your most used business tool?
0: Yeah, probably the petrophysical software. You know, there's engineering software, there's petrophysical software, and there's geophysical software, and, and we have all we have all. I'm familiar with all. Have a working knowledge of mostly the engineering software, and the pet, and very strong uh, working knowledge of the petrophysical software. And what I have found is. They all go hand in hand, and having a working knowledge of all three helps you reach into the guys that are doing the work for you now, or if you want to do the work yourself, you have that working knowledge. So I think I've been real successful in pulling more out of people than they know how to pull out of themselves Uh, by asking the right questions, and asking the right questions has two sides of the coin mm-hmm. asking the right questions lets people know that you know a lot about what they're doing, and so they're not gonna there's gonna be a lot less b s mm-hmm. also knowing more about what they know helps you ask the right questions that generate their creative or draw on their creative thinking. You know, if they're being very mechanical and they're very being highly technical. But let's reach out beyond that. I feel like I've taken a lot of company misfits and turned on the light bulb for them. A lot of company misfits are companies that are trying to force fit the the round peg in the square hole.
1: That sounds very familiar, actually. And
0: I believe in finding the right square hole for the right square peg. And people are good at what they like to do. Mm -hmm. And they hate what you're forcing them to do. So you're not going to force fit anything. So, and and again, it reaches back into the experience. My, my, that experience with Pennzoil was gigantic as far as putting the pieces of the puzzle together and putting them together correctly. Wind people up and let them do what they really like to do, and you're going to get a lot more out of them. Recognize what they don't like to do and find that person that likes to do that. So at the end of the day, the whole team is put together of people that like what they're doing.
1: And provide plenty of passion in doing so.
0: Right. And then success is infectious. You get a team to be successful, the light bulb comes on, and they go, we want more of this. And this is how we got here. Yeah. So let's do more of it. Perfect.
1: Speaking of Machiavellian, what you said earlier, who's your most respected competitor since you haven't cut all their heads off? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Again, it's, I'd like to mention a company. Yeah, go ahead. Esize. There's some highly technical uh, guys over there. They're they're competitors, but they're also partners in a sense. e and Nexus is another good one that I, I haven't done a lot of work with. But when we did work together, I really, all of them, I respect their technologies and recognize that our competitors are better than us at certain things. And they're not as good as us at other things. So that's pretty fair. I respect them but they are competitors because we're all chasing after the same work. But I try to try to convince them that I can help you. There's going to be times where you can help me and we'll get that work if we work together on it. Mm -hmm. Neither one of us might get that work if we're competing with each other. So we, we need to be kind of, we're selective about how we compete together and how we team up. Those people that have that, I really respect. I mean, I I don't have to agree with them, and I in fact I don't even have to like them. Yeah. <laughs> but we're of like mind and like appreciation as far as what does it take to win? Win. What does it take just to be a winner? Sometimes I have to be a follower. Other times I'm going to have to insist on being a leader. Just what? Let the data tell you what you need. What is the right thing to do? Very good.
1: What would you say is your most important lesson learned?
0: Oh, boy, there's been a bunch of them. I guess that's the beauty of it. Lots of lessons learned. The one, one that comes immediately to mind is when my boss said, go make friends. I, that never crossed my mind. I never, never thought I was making friends. I, I knew we needed to be friendly to work together. But certainly now, Making friends is probably the most important thing. Understanding how to break through with people so that they know who you are and what you can do for them. And getting them to open up to them wanting to understand you or know you and them willing to tell you where you can help them the most. And that, that's that's finding that match. Other lessons learned or just... Boy, there are just so many, it's kind of hard to know where to start. A little bit on the negative side, unfortunately, is my faith in my oil field brethren on the trust side has been shaken more in the last 10 to 15 years, being out on my own. I always took people at face value, Yeah, and I thought everybody was open with me, but it uh, I'm finding in the business world you can't depend on that and even you just have to keep your guard up and that's not a good feeling
1: that's I, not a good feeling yeah I understand that completely And that's a hard pill to swallow
0: it is it's very disappointing and it was part of my conviction that business doesn't have to be done that way it doesn't have to be Machiavellian it doesn't have to be you do good work, and that should be good enough.
1: Yeah, it should be, but it is what it is, you know? What's your favorite podcast?
0: Honestly, you're the only one I know of. <laughs> oh. oh, that's really cool. So you are my favorite. I mean,
1: <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. But I need to get you exposed to more podcasts. Okay. There's just so many more out there. Okay. I and mean, I appreciate the compliment. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bruce. I know our schedules were... Kind of out there, and this was very last minute, so I really appreciate you coming on. And-
0: it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it listening with you.
1: Yeah, it was a great story. If people want to reach out to you or want to learn more about Sierra Pine Resource International, how could they go about doing that?
0: Well, our our website mm-hmm. www.sprioilgas.com, and uh, they're welcome to give me a call and give you my cell cell number.
1: How about LinkedIn? Are you on LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Yes,
0: I'm on LinkedIn. All
1: right. So that concludes this episode. Just remember, it's up to you to open the next door.
0: Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Bulwarks Oil and Gas Industry Leaders podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at (laughs) oilandgasindustryleaders.com.